Welcome back to the Southern Unsolved Mystery Series. We are once again going to be looking at a handful of lesser-known cold cases from the Southern United States. This time, we are looking into some cold cases from the state of Tennessee. Tennessee is a place I lived for a few years in my teens, and I have many memories from that time, good and bad. From rolling foothills to pristine mountaintops, there is no shortage of natural beauty in the state. With that said though, there are stories and mysteries that seemingly leave us without answers. It is my goal with this series to try and bring light to cold cases that may have been lost to time. Cases that did not get the media coverage they deserved. I've done my best to piece together the stories of these unfortunate events using newspaper archives, public records, and various media reports. As always, if you have any suggestions for future cases or states for me to cover, leave a comment down below letting me know. Number 1. Sadie Wallace Nelson We are starting this episode off in the small town of Benton, Tennessee, in Polk County. There are less than 1,300 residents in the area as of 2019, but at the time this took place, the population was well under 1,000 residents. Outside of being tied to historical events such as the Trail of Tears, Benton is a seemingly quaint and quiet town, but as we have learned in this series, no matter how seemingly safe your neighborhood is, strange and tragic things can always occur. In the early summer, of 1996, Sadie Wallace Nelson had been living with her boyfriend, John Burley Pike, on a small farm just north of Benton. They lived off Highway 411 and were joint caretakers of the property. Sadie was 74 years old and John was 77 years old, so it is safe to say they were in the latter years of their life. But from all accounts, the couple seemed to be happy spry, and in rather good health. In the morning hours of June 9th, 1996, John Burley Pike would be found laying in his driveway, dead. He was severely beaten and had his throat cut. Officials were called and subsequently searched the property, and it was described as virtually untouched. But oddly, they found no sign of Sadie Nelson. After talking to friends, family, and neighbors, officials concluded that she was last seen on June 8th, 1996, but she has not been seen or heard from ever again. This sent rumors jolting through the local area. The quiet, quaint little town of Benton was now flipped upside down. A few months would go by before any meaningful leads would come up. At this point, officials did not know if Sadie was the killer and went on the run or she was forcefully removed. Finally, in December 1996, police thought they may have found Sadie Wallace when they learned someone in Batavia, New York, had been cashing Sadie's social security checks. After further investigation, it turned out Sadie Wallace's son had been cashing her checks and keeping the money for himself. He apparently did not know the whereabouts of his mother. I wanted to cover this case because it seems to be a mystery more complex than what is presented on the surface. Normally, I cover cases that are a lot more cut and dry when it comes to who the victim is, 
and who was not. Sadie Wallace had been married six times and was not from the Benton area. While there are no warrants out for Sadie Wallace, officials still would like to question her about John Pike's murder. It remains unclear if she also met with foul play or if she was complicit. If you or anyone you may know have any information that may help the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, please contact them at 423-377-6470 or go to tn.gov tbi to submit information. You can always remain anonymous. Number 2. Roger K. Lyles Following this next case, we land in the bumping city of Nashville, Tennessee. In the 1990s, Nashville was in the middle of a boom of population, boasting nearly half a million residents at the time of the story. But no matter how safe and lively a city seems, there are undoubtedly going to be tragic, unsolved mysteries haunting the streets. Roger K. Lyles, who was 49 years old at the time, was living in an apartment in the 500 block of Cedar Lane in Nashville. Roger is 5'11", with brown hair, brown eyes, and weighs somewhere around 260 pounds. Roger has a tattoo that reads, Born to Lose on one arm, and had a metal pin inserted in the upper part of his arm. I was not able to confirm which arm this was, unfortunately. It was late spring in 1992 when friends and family suddenly lost contact with Roger Lyles. On the morning of May 5th, 1992, Roger's physical therapist called him to let him know his appointment had changed, but never got a hold of him. About two days later, Roger was supposed to attend a family reunion function, but he never showed. A few days later, May 11th rolls around and a couple of Roger Lyle's friends went to his house in Antioch. This is not to be confused with his apartment in Nashville. Roger's friends noted that his car was left in the driveway with the keys locked inside of it. Dishes and the morning newspaper were found on the table. Also, Roger's glasses, which he did need to see, were also left behind. There did not seem to be any signs of forced entry or any evidence of a struggle. Roger's dog, a schnauzer, was found roaming around Nashboro Village. This was about six miles or so away from the Nashville apartment. But again, there was no sign of Roger Lyles on the scene. Officials strongly believe foul play is at hand here. No one has heard from or seen Roger Lyles ever since. If you or anyone you may know has any information, no matter how small, please contact Nashville Police Department's Crime Stoppers Unit at 615-74-CRIME. Number 3. Marceline Smith For this final case, we are jumping to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a decently sized city in Rutherford County. With a current boom in population, the city now boasts nearly 150,000 residents. Back in 2007, though, it was only around 109,000 residents. It was December 6th, 2007, 
and Marceline Smith was amid her Christmas season shopping and preparations. Like many, Marceline often made herself a schedule for the day. Sometime around 1.30pm that day, she set out to go shopping. On her list that day was to hit Kmart, Kroger, Old Time Pottery, and the Stones River Mall. Needless to say, she had a lot on her plate that day. When she did not return home by dark, her family began to worry. Glover Palmer Smith, who often goes by Palmer, had reported Marceline missing at 6 p.m. Officials were quick to investigate and according to police, Palmer told them Marceline had $600 on her. He then mentions she may have had up to $10,000 on her, which seems like a rather large variation. The next morning, Marceline's car, a champagne-colored Lincoln Navigator, was found abandoned in a Walmart parking lot. The location was South Rutherford Boulevard, and there was no sign of her at the scene. Her keys were inside the ignition, and the passenger door was left open. Officials got access to the surveillance camera footage of the parking lot. What they found was interesting and a bit disturbing. A man drove up, parked the SUV, and removed a bright green bike from the back of it. This was around 2.30pm, only an hour after Marceline left for her shopping. This unidentified man rode south toward the Applebee's seen in the footage. The footage clearly shows Marceline was not in the vehicle at the time it was parked. Marceline was 69 years old and had a cell phone at the time. Sadly, no activity has been noted since she disappeared, but the phone's GPS tracking device still transmitted a signal. Several days after, police found her phone off Barfuel Crescent Road. This was roughly three or so miles from the Smith's house. Even odder, this was in the opposite direction the car was found. To make things even more suspicious, Palmer suddenly stopped helping police in the investigation. He also hired a lawyer, which is even more worrisome. Not more than three months after Marceline vanished, another woman came forward and accused Palmer of stalking her and took out a restraining order on him. The woman stated Palmer continuously asked her out on dates and called her at her workplace, even after she asked him to stop several times. He would apparently always refer to Marceline in the past tense as well. To make things even more diluted, Palmer would go on to purchase a coffin and headstone for Marceline. In March 2009, Palmer was charged with six counts of making false statements to the police and two counts of evidence tampering, all in relation to Marceline's disappearance. The trial began in April 2010 and did not look good for Palmer Smith. The prosecution made the argument that Palmer was the one who parked Marceline's car and rode away on the bike. He also was caught lying many times to the police, which hindered their investigation. Even Palmer and Marceline's son, Evan Smith, described Palmer as being mentally and physically abusive to both him and his mother. He even claimed his mother was hospitalized in 2004 after an attack from Palmer, who simply claimed that she had fallen down the stairs on accident. Palmer always maintained his innocence and was ultimately sentenced to a year in jail and six years probation. He has not, however, been charged for the disappearance of Marceline Smith, which is why I've chose to cover this story today. Loved ones described Marceline as a reliable person who would be unlikely to leave her family and friends without warning. They have been outspoken about their fears of abduction and potential murder. 
Marceline is diabetic and would not do well without her medications. Officials believe foul play is involved and are desperate for any leads. If you, or anyone you may know, have any information on the whereabouts of Marceline Smith, please contact Murfreesboro Police Department at 615-893-1311. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Unsolved Mystery Series. If you have a case that you would like to suggest or have a state that you would like me to cover, please comment them down below. If you have any links or any information to send with that case, submit it at swampdweller.net. I'd love to see what you guys have to suggest. If you enjoyed this video, please be sure to give it a like. The more likes it gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm and that's very helpful for true crime content, as they often suppress it. If you're listening on iTunes or another podcast platform, please give this a 5-star rating as it truly helps us reach more people, and it's very, very much appreciated. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. If you have an allegedly true story or something that you would like to share in the podcast, be sure to submit your stories at swampdweller.net. I'd love to see what you guys have to share. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories wherever you go, you can download them on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast, and it's absolutely free to do so. If you guys would like to support the Swamp outside of hitting that like button, giving us a 5-star rating on iTunes, and maybe subscribing, check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, face mask, hoodies, and so much more. Thank you guys so much as always for supporting the swamp. I'll see you guys soon with another creepy episode.